This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. The term Florida man has long been a pejorative term meant to capture the state's essential weirdness. You've undoubtedly read a Florida man headline as they occur daily and usually involve a crime that has been committed under the influence of drugs or alcohol combined with the presence of strippers, firearms, and alligators. Sometimes all at once. Florida man stories. You hear the phrase, you know what it means, something you read and you think, this must have happened in Florida. Florida is, after all, the third largest state by population. So there's a higher probability that some of those people will be very strange and wind up naked in a stranger's living room carrying a fucking chainsaw while high on fentanyl. Some recent Florida Man headlines are as follows, and folks, I'm not making this shit up. Florida Man accidentally butt-dials 911 while cooking meth with his mom. Florida Man attacks ATM machine with a hatchet after refuses to take his check. Florida Man rescued from vending machine. Naked Florida Man captured after threatening passerbys with a sword. It makes sense that outside of liberal Miami, Florida, is a red state that just keeps getting redder. It's the undisputed capital of Magistan, with the ultimate Florida man, Donald Trump, presiding from Mar-a-Lago. Speaking of Trump, he'll be forever tied to a St. Pete man. That's because of this, uh, Trump's face tattooed on his leg. That looks kind of eerie, doesn't it? It took 13 hours but the new owner says it was well worth it. Yeah, Fox 13's Josh Cassio joins us now from our control room. Uh, Josh, that's commitment right there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. This guy says he would never get a politician tattooed on him, but he says Trump is not a politician. He says so far reactions have been very positive, and he tells me he thinks it's the best Trump tattoo he's ever seen. It's also fitting that another Florida man, alleged child sex trafficker Congressman Matt Gates, represents Florida's panhandle, making the area his playground as he drank, smoked, and snorted his way through the state with a number of young consorts. Uh, yeah, this message is for Matt Gates. Uh, we're calling from the Florida Man Association, and uh, we'd like to notify you that you've been nominated for our Lifetime Achievement Award. Please send us any um, evidence or video documentation you may have of yourself. Uh, it could be wiping out on a four-wheeler, uh, taunting an alligator from, from too close, uh, or using Venmo to pay women for sex and then taking pictures of those suspiciously young-looking women and sharing the photos on the floor the United States House of Representatives as you keep track of your points-based sexual conquest competition while doing drugs and transporting women across state lines and all the while using your real name. Any any videos that might uh, uh, be of uh, that sort of substance uh, uh, will really help in, in, in helping us decide uh, who the Florida man should be. And uh, thank you very much. Financially speaking, the state has no income tax and its bankruptcy laws favor those seeking to rebound from past troubles. It's a place where the infamous can start over. Or as the saying goes, a sunny place for shady people. Now don't get me wrong, I love Florida. My parents live there. Miami is a world-class city. But I promise to always be honest with you, and Florida is a weird fucking place, especially the farther you get from Dade County. A Florida man asked police to test his meth for authenticity. 
With all that in mind, it's hard to connect the anything goes ethos and the Florida man myth with the reality of what Florida has become. Once the biggest traditional presidential battleground, it is suddenly turned into a laboratory of possibility for the political right led by its unlikely political messiah. That's the asshole Ron DeSantis. Florida is a free state. Florida is a law and order state. We will not allow law enforcement to be defunded. I've proposed an election integrity unit whose sole focus will be the enforcement of Florida's election laws. Florida has transformed over the past two years as DeSantis has increased and flexed his power to remarkable effect, embracing policies that once seemed unthinkable. That has made the Republican governor a Fox News darling and turned him into a possible presidential contender. Who are the best governors in the country? We don't really need to guess. Just ask yourself, where are people moving? Are they moving to Michigan? Are they moving to New York? Are they moving to California? All great states, but run by total incompetence, political hacks, corrupt people. No, they're moving to Florida, actually. People who want to live a free American life are moving to Florida. Ron DeSantis is the governor of Florida. And if you're the Democratic Party or its minions in the media, this is a huge problem because the guy's succeeding. Clearly, that's why people are moving to his state. This state's swift and unexpected rightward tilt has happened as Florida has swelled with new residents. Between July of 2020 and July of 2021, about 260,000 more people arrived than left, a net migration higher than any other state. The trend began before the pandemic, but appeared to accelerate as remote workers sought warm weather, low taxes, and few public health restrictions. One governor, by the way, who has become a beacon of hope for Americans in Florida and beyond, Governor Ron DeSantis. He's standing up against critical race theory, against rioting, lawlessness, and against lockdowns. He's joining us tonight with reaction. Uh, Governor, good to see you. Thank you for being with us. Let me read what you said about critical race theory. You said the woke class wants to teach kids to hate each other rather than teaching them how to read. We're not going to let them bring nonsense ideology into Florida schools. Uh, you love the state, you love the country, and it's unthinkable. There are people in positions of leadership in the federal government who believe that we should te teach kids to hate our country. We're not going to stand for it in Florida. Tell us why. Well, first of all, Sean, we're happy to have uh, banned it in Florida. It's not going to be allowed in Florida classrooms. Spending tax dollars to teach kids that America is a rotten place uh, is absolutely unacceptable. DeSantis is the Republicans' five-star general in the culture wars, the latest example being his battle with Disney. Florida's biggest employer over new don't say gay laws banning classroom instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity in kindergarten through to the third grade. And what some Democrats see as incipient authoritarianism, many Republicans see as a Governor DeSantis-led punchback against liberal values that don't represent how many Floridians live and think. Hey, I want to share with you some of our ideas for Disney World. <laughs> Without Reedy Creek, historians believe it's unlikely Uncle Walt would have realized his dream in Florida. It's clearly political. The governor and Republicans and the legislator, at least many of them, seem to be trying to punish Disney. 
Disney World is twice the size of Manhattan, or for another reference, about the size of San Francisco. It straddles two counties, Osceola and Orange County. We reached out to the managers of those counties to ask them whether they could take on the responsibilities if the state decides to eliminate the Reedy Creek. After getting positive reviews from many conservatives on his pushback against pandemic restrictions, the governor has signed or proposed a slew of bills that appear aimed more at making points in national culture wars. They include the Stop Woke Act, which prohibits teaching that could make students feel they bear responsibility for historic wrongs in businesses from using diversity training that could have the same result as a deplatforming bill that would fine social media companies for kicking a politician off their platform, currently stalled by lawsuits, an anti-riot bill that stiffens penalties for some protest activity, and the Don't Say Gay law that bans school teaching of sexual and gender topics deemed non-age appropriate. Woke Act that prohibits Florida's public schools and private businesses from making people feel uncomfortable or guilty over their race, sex, or national origin. The governor's saying, quote, we believe in education, not indoctrination. That was just one of several bills that the governor signed, capping off a very busy week in Florida politics. The governor also signed three bills targeting the Walt Disney World Company, and he also signed into law the new congressional maps uh, into law today. This year, the state legislator has even handed Governor DeSantis the authority to take the lead on redrawing the state's 28 congressional districts after he vetoed the GOP-controlled legislator's own bill in March. Mr. DeSantis has proposed a redistricting map that would give Republicans a 20 to 8 advantage and eliminate two districts now represented by black Democrats. In an unusual move, Governor Ron DeSantis has submitted a proposal to reshape the state's congressional map as Florida lawmakers move to redraw political maps in the coming months. The move would carve up districts held by black Democrats, for example, breaking up District 20, formerly held by Democrat Elsie Hastings. It would also dismantle a North Florida district also held by a Democrat, as well as St. Petersburg district held by Democratic Congressman Charlie Crist. Chris hopes to challenge the governor in the November general election. Democrats were quick to criticize the governor's proposed map and suggested it could not pass legal muster as currently drafted. On a daily basis, the right-wing press churns out fawning stories about DeSantis with headlines like the promise of Ron DeSantis. Could Governor Ron DeSantis be the favorite GOP frontrunner for 2024? A Ron DeSantis masterclass in rope-a-dope. Media keep trying and failing to take down Florida's Ron DeSantis. Carol Markowitz on what Governor Ron DeSantis is really like. So real and down to earth and on and on and on. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis hit back at critics by signing the parental rights and education bill that bans instruction of sexual orientation and gender identity from kindergarten to third grade. I don't care what corporate media outlets say, I don't care what Hollywood says, I don't care what big corporations say, here I stand, I'm not backing down. The DeSantis pitch is to wrest the MAGA movement from the grifters who built it and place it in the hands of a trusted professional politician. This is a promise I have long feared. 
Just imagine what a Trumpified party, no longer led by an erratic, deeply unpopular cable news binge watcher would be capable of. America could start feeling a whole lot like Florida. Did anybody see this coming? This this sudden schism between two men who had so much in common. I think Trump feels a level of betrayal. He feels like he made Ron DeSantis. Uh, uh, you know, folks who don't follow Florida politics super close don't realize this. He, Ron DeSantis was basically a backbench House member, not terribly well known, running against a very prominent statewide official in Adam Putnam. And he was uh, he was not going to win that primary unless and until Trump endorsed him. Mm. And Trump did do just that. And the rest is history. So I think Trump feels a sense of political ownership. Uh, over the governor and, and the fact that he is not feeling that reciprocity right now uh, in terms of, uh, you know, the governor not being willing to say, I won't run for president in 24 if you're on the race, I think has stung Trump. The Republican elites rallying to DeSantis are calculating that his modified Trumpism will serve as an adequate substitute. They like him the way they like Glenn Youngkin. In that, both men allow them to wallow in authoritarian waters without the stink of Donald Trump attached. Everyone knows my husband, Ron DeSantis, is endorsed by President Trump, but he's also an amazing dad. Ron loves playing with the kids. Build the wall. He reads stories. Then Mr. Trump said, you're fired. I love that part. He's teaching Madison to talk. Make America great again. People say Ron's all Trump, but he is so much more. Big league. So good. I just thought you should know. Ron DeSantis for governor. The question remains whether the charmless, humorless DeSantis, a man known to yell at school children while the cameras are rolling, can scam the fucking electorate into believing his snake oil as effectively as Donald Trump did. Tensions appear to be building between former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, two political allies who may one day become rivals. They've been sniping at each other over the last few weeks, and the governor kept it going today. Our senior political reporter, Michael Putney, has the story from the newsroom. Eden Calvin, today the governor once again refused to say if he has gotten a booster shot. Former President Trump says he got his and says any politician who refuses to say if he's been boosted is gutless. A spectacular job in Florida. There was a time not long ago when Trump and DeSantis had a bromance going. It's a true honor to be standing here endorsed by the President of the United States. Trump's endorsement helped catapult DeSantis to the governor's mansion. He returned the favor by praising Trump on Fox News and at his rallies in Florida. Is Southwest Florida Trump country or what? The falling out between DeSantis and Trump has been over vaccinations. What a DeSantis-led Republican Party would look like is perhaps best captured in his response to the claims that the 2020 election was stolen. DeSantis began by playing the familiar role of Trump defender, complaining the day after the election about Fox News' decision to call Arizona for Joe Biden. The network, he speculated, had some type of motive, whether it was ratings, whether it was something else. He went on Hannity's show to warn of vote dumps, a Republican term designated to cast suspicion on the results coming out of Democratic counties. 
I tell you, what I'm seeing in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania is troubling, Sean. Later that day, DeSantis went on Fox News again and floated the possibility that Republican-controlled legislators in battleground states won by Biden could override the election results and appoint Trump electors. In Madison, Wisconsin. To Joseph R. Biden, Jr. The state electors officially cast their votes for Biden. But elsewhere in Wisconsin's capital, another meeting of fake electors was happening at the same time. It's all super secret for security reasons, so we met in a secret location. We waited for almost an hour before they took us to the state capitol. That's Bill Fian, one of 10 Republican electors who signed the certificate of the 2020 electors. They declared Donald Trump won Wisconsin's electoral votes. The problem, Trump lost. But that didn't stop these wannabe Republican electors. Fian, in a deleted Facebook post, snapped a photo of himself and others in the meeting as they met secretly with guards to protect them. Fian also detailed this a year ago in his newly scrutinized podcast. There was security, armed security to protect us, and other officials from the Republican Party of Wisconsin were there. We had a meeting room reserved, and that's where we met to cast our ballots in the Electoral College. On the day of the insurrection, DeSantis issued a perfunctory rebuke. Violence or rioting of any kind is unacceptable before pivoting back to his comfortable posture of offense. In the past year, he has assailed Liz Cheney for cooperating with the investigation of the attack. We want people that are going to fight the left refused to say whether Biden legitimately won the election and similarly declined to clarify whether Pence was correct to certify the electoral college results. By the time the anniversary of the insurrection arrived, DeSantis was floating the right-wing rumor that the violence on January 6th had actually been ginned up by undercover FBI agents. But mostly, he resented the media for covering the issue at all. Today is going to be, I mean, honestly, I'm not going to watch any of it, but, but, but you're going to see the D.C. New York media. I mean, this is, this is their Christmas, January 6th, okay? They are going to take this and milk this for anything they could to try to be able to smear anyone who ever supported Donald. So I think it's going to end up being just a politicized Charlie Foxtrot today. Um, I don't expect anything good to come out of anything that Pelosi and the gang are doing. I don't expect anything from the, the corporate press to be enlightening. Um, I think it's going to be nauseating, quite frankly, um, and I'm not going to do it. But I do think that if you have this January 6th committee, why do we not know some of the people who we know were really involved in, in orchestrating this? They got pulled off the most wanted list. Christopher Ray was asked at the um, under oath what FBI was involved in that, and he would not answer the question. And so I think that this is something that, that has really been used uh, for political narrative. DeSantis also marked the anniversary by wooing right-wing social media personalities with an invitation to his office, dinner at the governor's mansion, and rooftop drinks. One of the less visible aspects of DeSantis's political operation has been its appeal to conservative activists who have gained clout and influence during the Trump era and who have legitimized vaccine skepticism, support for Vladimir Putin, and dismissing or even participating in the January 6th insurrection. How's things going in Florida these days? 
In addition to this rash of Nazi incidents, uh, in addition to the Nazi incidents themselves, it's kind of a follow-on scandal that's now simmering in Florida involving Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis. When the Nazi group showed up in Central Florida on Saturday, right, screaming anti-Semitic abuse at people and, and beating up at least one Jewish passerby, um, and then the Nazis showed up the following day on those overpasses as well. And this was upsetting, right, in Central Florida and local and state leaders, Democrat and Republican, they all rushed to condemn the Nazis, one by one, the local mayor, the sheriff, members of Congress, uh, Florida's Republican U.S. Senator Rick Scott, they all volunteered themselves. They all came forward and condemned the events in no uncertain terms. But from the governor, it's been a little weird. The only initial response from Florida's Republican governor, Ron DeSantis, was this tweet from his press secretary saying, quote, do we even know if they are Nazis? If I had to choose between Trump and DeSantis, I'd just assume take a bullet to the head. DeSantis is worse because he's actually competent and his actual beliefs beyond the need for power and personal enrichment. This is a man who actually believes what he says and the things that he believes are fucking wrong and frightening. He's also a terrible bully, a fucking asshole of the highest order who prides himself on being a dick. The kind of guy who makes children cry. He's like a fucking high school gym teacher who makes you pay for the fact that he didn't make it to the majors. The middle manager who wants you to work weekends. In short, he's just a fucking prick. But that's not the worst part. DeSantis's enthusiastic courtship of right-wing extremists has broadened his array of media advocates. Perhaps most important, his no enemies to the right strategy has sent a message about his brand. Unlike the weak Republican establishment, DeSantis will stand with conservatives, but that includes white supremacists, QAnon lunatics, and other fellow travelers. I mean, this is a very dangerous guy, folks. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is Michael Steele, the former Maryland Lieutenant Governor. Steele was also chairman of the RNC from 2009 to 2011 and was the first African-American to serve in both capacities. A self-described Lincoln Republican, Steele has found himself, like so many others like him, twisting in the political wilderness since Donald Trump rose to power. The party he once loved and to which he dedicated his life is no longer recognizable. Nowadays, Steele is a frequent presence on MSNBC and hosts the incredible Michael Steele podcast, so please check it out. He joins me today on Mea Culpa amidst the gathering storm of McCarthygate. The presence of those tapes is a fucking disaster for the House Minority Leader. For those with a conscience and moral compass, it shows McCarthy at his most craven. He is a man who knew the damage that Trump had wrought and feared more violence only to swallow those fears and get back on the bus with the former president. And for those on the right, McCarthy has become a party traitor, a fucking narc, willing to throw his fellow Republicans to the wolves. Steele believes the troubles for the minority leader have only just begun and that there will be more tapes to come. The question is, if not McCarthy, then who? Will Jim Jordan become House leader or someone even worse? Hard to imagine. 
Now, all of this and more only on mea culpa with Michael Steele. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, so Mike, question for you here. The New York Times reported today on just how involved certain GOP members were in the effort to overturn the 2020 election. Now, all of them are House Freedom Caucus members. I mean, individuals like Jim Jordan, Paul Gosar, Lauren Boebert, Mo Brooks, Mike Lee, and the rest of the freaking crazies. Now, all of this shows a broad effort by a wide swath of the GOP to end democracy. That's how I see it. My first question to you is, how is it possible that there are so far zero consequences for engaging in this type of behavior? I mean, is it not illegal to overturn democracy? And if not, and if not, what safeguards can be added to ensure that elected officials do not engage in a coup moving forward? Hey, well, first of all, let me say it's great to be back with you, Michael, and uh, really appreciate uh, coming on and having this conversation because I think it's not only timely, but it's incredibly important on a number of levels. So one, uh, consequences. What the, the broader public has learned, but more specifically, the individuals you cite um, inside and outside of the administration and certainly within the Republican Party, um, is uh, there are no consequences for bad behavior. Um, they, they did not realize the judgment of the people or, or the legal system, unlike some that we know uh, who um, got caught and, and paid a price. These individuals have not. And, and so until, until one of them goes down in a spectacular way, um, there, there is no downside to engaging in what, we say, what we've seen. So the text messages that are coming out now reveal very clearly something that you and I talked about the last time we were together, uh, and certainly that you've known and, and I've known separately for a long time, that there was intimate involvement by these individuals who were coaxing and coaching uh, this process along, whether it was from the Fox, Fox News uh, uh, ecosystem or, or or if it was uh, out of uh, the halls of the, the Republican caucus, they were all sort of uh, shaping the events that that led to January 6th. And so now, um, you know, the question becomes, and this falls back on the Justice Department, uh, as well as the January 6th commission, what will be done for it? by uh, because of it. What price will they pay? Um, you know, I don't think I, I don't get the, the idea, quite honestly, Michael, why everyone's so damned afraid to haul Donald Trump's ass in front of the January 6th commission committee or to have Merrick Garland, you know, uh, put the paper on him um, as Letitia James is doing in New York City and 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 make him at least account publicly for his behavior. Um, and until that happens, you're going to see more of this stuff uh, gotten away with. Yeah. And, you know, part of the Trump playbook, and again, I take responsibility for a bulk of it because I was the creator of it. What we did is we created a message. And then that message was sent by emails, by texts, etc., to all of the various different members whether mm -hmm. if it was part of the campaign, it would go to basically all the executives as part of the campaign. And he did the same thing when it came to government. So everybody stays on message. Let's not forget, 
Let's not forget for a second that Republicans kept calling it legitimate political discourse. That the entire January 6th insurrection, right, the entire coup against our government was political, was legitimate political discourse. When anybody with half a brain knows that that's not what it was. And what are we seeing now? We're seeing the Justice Department, you know, try to flex their muscles and say, we're doing what we are supposed to do, the January 6th committee included. And they say, we've already now prosecuted several hundred people who were involved in the insurrection. The part that offends me, and I think it should offend all Americans, is it's the Joe, it's the Joe and Jane Doe that are being prosecuted. These assholes from the Oath Keepers, right, who are being charged with sedition under, what is it, 18 USC, oh, what the heck is the number over here? I know I wrote it down somewhere. 18 USC 2834, right? The whole issue of sedition. Two or more persons in any state or territory, in any place, subject to the jurisdiction of the United States, if they conspire to overthrow, put down, or to destroy by force the government of the United States, or to levy war against them, or to oppose by force the authority thereof, or by force to prevent, hinder, or delay the execution of any law of the United States, etc. And that's exactly what they're charging them with. They're not charging them with treason. They're not even charging them with the insurrection. It's all under sedition, conspiracy to commit sedition. What's interesting is the number one seditionist himself, the, the, <laughs> the, the commander of sedition, right? right. What, you're right. Why have they not, why has Merrick Garland not now already indicted him and hauled his ass, you know, to court yeah, for it, the it, same it, it, act, for the same act that they did to all of these other people that he sent there? And and interestingly enough, because I was talking about all of these emails and so on and these text messages from Mark Meadows, it all proves exactly what you and I have known for a long time. It's also what it's proving what you and I have spoken about in the past on this show. It's proof positive. Yeah, no, I I think you you're absolutely right about uh, how this lays itself out and how people uh, not only perceive it, but understand it based on the facts, based on what we witnessed as eyewitnesses to history at that time. What we are now learning from the revelations that have come from uh, emails and text messages, et cetera. But here's the rub. And and I do it as a lawyer. Uh, I know you do as a lawyer as well. Understanding the disbarred lawyer. True. But a lawyer, un, un, at least the education, you know, right? You, <laughs> I'll take you get that. where I'm going with this. I do. Um, but um, that there there is, from a prosecutor standpoint, an idea of of making sure I can back up the charges I want to bring, making sure that if I'm going to go after uh, the number one seditionist in the country, Donald Trump, that I've got a case that will not get thrown out by a judge or a case that, where, that will not lead to a conviction by a jury of his peers. And, and so particularly given that the jury pool that likely will be chosen, um, you know, will have a mix of, of people with views on Donald Trump. Um, they want to make sure that they, they lay that 
case out correctly, that the case is is it makes itself, if you will. Having said that, though, I think that there's been enough that has been publicly revealed. We have I mean, we haven't seen the stuff that the January 6th commission uh, has uh, been able to pull together the over 900, um, uh, you know, um, interviews that they've done or 600 interviews that they've done you know, thousands and thousands of paper pages of paper um, that have been amassed in this thing that uh, the Justice Department does not already have in its in its hands the evidence of the nature of a crime that as you've described. And so I think that brings enormous pressure on Garland, uh, Merrick Garland. I think it's enormous pressure on the January 6th commission to when they start their public uh, hearings to to come with the goods, to deliver uh, those receipts. Um, Because we all know that uh, after November 4th, if Republicans take the House, this all goes away. The January 6th commission becomes a Hunter Biden hunting party um, and uh, becomes the stage for uh, impeachment proceedings against Joe Biden and, and Kamala Harris for God knows what, maybe just getting up in the morning. Um, so the, the realities um, uh, are stark and they're very clear uh, what lies ahead, which means, again, from Merrick Garland's position, knowing what the end game potentially looks like in a change of power, uh, power in November to if, if I'm going to do something, I'm going to make it stick and I'm going to make it stick hard. And, and so, yeah, we're frustrated with not seeing a lot of that. I'd like to see at least some indication that they get the seriousness of this. Uh, sometimes I just don't understand if they really do, but I, I assume I have to assume that they do. Um, and we'll have to wait and see how they ultimately play that card. Yeah. Well, you know the problem with assuming on anything, right? I do. That I do. But, you know, Mike, I'm going to have to disagree with you on one aspect here. Sure. When it comes to prosecutors, and I believe this is the exact same mistake that the New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg is making, prosecutors' jobs is not—a prosecutor's job is not to convict— It's to prosecute a case. It's to look at the evidence and determine whether or not a crime has been committed. Well, as I said, 18, you know, USC, and let me go back to my note here, 2834, there is no doubt that there is ample evidence to demonstrate a case of conspiracy to commit sedition. And I'm going to just now reference a CNN article that is by uh, Jamie Gangel, where they talk about The January 6th committee has obtained 2,319 text messages, all right? And in it, it's, of course, between Chief of Staff Mark Meadows and a whole slew of individuals, many of whom that I had mentioned at the beginning of this program. And what the article turns around and says is that these texts offer the most revealing picture to date of how Trump's inner circle, supporters, and Republican lawmakers work behind the scenes to try to overturn the election results and then reacted to violence, right, reacted to the violence that effort unleashed at the United States Capitol on January 6th, 20 of 21. All right. Now, 
That's just the ones that Mark Meadows turned over. I'm very curious about the other 8,000 or so text messages that he has not turned over. But nevertheless, the information that's been provided, whether it was text messages from Don Jr., from Ivanka, from, you know, from even Ryan's Priebus, Rancid Penis, you know, Mm -hmm. and all of these assholes, even, even those go ahead and they show what was going on there, what the intent was. And my feeling is that Mark Meadows should be number one on the list immediately for an indictment. He's playing with people, whether it was with burner phones, like has been discussed before the January 6th committee, or these arrogant assholes were using their, you know, their own personal or government right. phones within which to do it. This is, as you stated, this is not a joke. This is our democracy in peril. And I totally agree with you 100% that if, in fact, the House turns, which it's expected to do that, and historically this is what has happened, the very first act by this new house, whether it's going to be Jim Jordan or it's going to be Mark Meadows as speaker, the very first act is going to be articles of impeachment against Joe Biden. Now, you asked yeah. a great question, too. Based upon what? They will cook it up with Afghanistan. They will cook it up with Ukraine. With Ukraine, They will, they will, who the heck knows? It doesn't matter. They will file articles of impeachment, and because they have the majority, those articles of impeachment will pass. Whether or not, like what happened with Trump, that he's convicted at the Senate level, that nobody knows, who knows, but rest assured, impeachment will happen day one, right after, you know, the um, the swearing in of all of these new Republican members. And that's, and that's not only is it a sad commentary for us, it's destructive to our democracy in going forward. I agree with all of that. And I, and I believe that that's, that is the analysis that the American people need to come to grips with, to be honest. Uh, look, we, we cannot absolve ourselves in all of this as well. We're not just passive participants or just, you know, hey, tune in, tune out viewers of what's happening to our democracy. Um, this will have a direct effect, not just on our present, but on certainly on our future. How we govern ourselves, who are those that we choose to lead in that governing, um, all of that matters. And I think the, the carefulness with which we expect our legal institutions like the DOJ um, uh, to take and and the approach that they have to take, that's all valid. But at the same time, we also have to recognize, as you said, there is the evidence. And my concern ultimately is, Michael, that because this involves a former president, because it involves a former chief of staff and other high government officials, because of that patina of, you know, uh, of of elevated status in our in our political life and culture that at the end of the day, they cannot or should not be touched. We do not want to disrupt uh, the system. We don't want to set a bad precedent. Well, for me, that's all bullshit. I mean, at the end of the day, you commit a crime. I got evidence to show you're out there telling people to show up and riot. Yeah, you've got to be held accountable for that, regardless of your position or your station of life, because you and I know damn well that if either one of us sat up and were involved in 
organizing the overthrow of the of the federal <laughs> government, we would then this wouldn't even be a question mark. It wouldn't even be a question Mike, mark if you had Mike, the kind of evidence against Donald Trump that they would, yes, you know, apply yes. to us. Well, I I paid $130,000 to a porn star who pulled the president's mushroom pecker, and I went to prison. Let, could you imagine what right. these assholes should get, including the Mark Meadows of the world, right? Who <laughs> These text messages clearly demonstrate, and I don't care if you are an up-the-ass Trump supporter where you can see his tonsils. It doesn't matter to me. <laughs> doesn't matter. The, bon the bottom line is look at the text messages and read them yourself. And if you can't read, I'm more than happy to try to find someone to read them you know, to you. But they clearly demonstrate how Mark Meadows played a key, key, key role in the attempts to stop Biden's certification on January 6th. Yeah. That, my friend, is the classic definition of sedition. All right, end of story. So at, yeah. the, at the, the bare, bare minimum, Mark Meadows should already be indicted. And the fact that he's able to get away with it, you know what that does? That empowers the lunatics, the fucking crazies, like Ted Cruz, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, yeah. like Matt Getz, yeah. like Mo Brooks, like that fucking jerk-off Paul Gosar, right? <laughs> I mean, it, what it does is it empowers them to continue to act in an illegal and an unconstitutional manner, plain and simple. I it don't does. understand why and I don't understand why you and I can have this conversation, but the country's not having this conversation. Well, and that and that and that speaks to what the country has decided it will concern itself with. Look, I get it. Inflation is eight percent. Um, gas prices are high. Um, there are a lot of um, external and internal uh, reasons for that, um, and there, it doesn't mean that they're less important concerns to have. Um, but there is a broader and, and I think more important uh, concern, and that is the state of our uh, criminal justice system, our judicial system, and the rule of law alongside of the democratic ideals that define the nation. When we, we like to say and preach, Michael, that no one is above the law, and then we start creating carve-outs, right? Uh, right? And not, not yep. direct carve-outs. But just so carve-outs carve out, carve by, you know, omission or carve-outs by, you know, just sort of soft-peddling behavior and, 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 and carve-outs by position. I mean, the fact of the matter is I'm so sick and tired of it. Well, no one's against, you know, Donald Trump is not above the law. But then why do we act as if he is? Right. I call you bullshit know? on that, too. Yeah. So that's that's the reality that we find ourselves in. And more and more Americans are subscribing to that point of view because they want they want, you know, to blame someone for paying five dollars for a gallon of gas. And I'm like, OK, that's the least of our concerns, because if you can't go vote, if you can just get hauled off into jail because you said the wrong thing which is the concern raised by right, you know, right now with what's going on with Twitter and, and all these other social media uh, pockets, you know, what, what do you care? Why are you concerned about the price of gas if your fundamental rights are, are stripped away and if your citizenship is called into question, if all of these other things, you know, we've got people out here burning books for God's sake because they don't like 
what's in the book, right? So all of this talk about, well, free speech by these by these hard-ass Republicans is bullshit because at the end of the day, they're burning books that I thought would fall under that banner of free speech. And so it boils down to, if you don't think they're going to come for you at some point, they will. You are a living lesson in that. And the, and the reality of it is, no matter how close you think you may be, um, you know, to to being protected, you're still too close to the sun. That's <laughs> the so- whole story. It's the whole story of Icarus, right? Yes. It's the whole story yes. of Icarus. And it's actually why I created Mea Culpa in the first place. Mea Culpa is not just a podcast. And I said this on the last one as well. Mea Culpa, I'm trying to create it as a movement, a movement not that's it's anti-Trump. Not right. that anti-Republican. It's a movement for democracy because I do truly see I've been close to power. I've been there by the sun and my wings melted and I fell flat on my face right down to earth because right. I hate to say it, you know, Donald was behind it along with Bill Barr and others. But, you know, I love how people start screaming, oh, my God, it's four dollars and 50 cents, five dollars a gallon of gas. Yet you're willing to pay two dollars and 50 cents for six. Uh, for 16.9 ounces of a bottle of water, right? You know, you need you need 10 of those in order to make one gallon. So you're basically paying $25 for a gallon of a gallon of water, but you're screaming and kicking and you're willing to cha- you're willing to throw democracy right into right. the fucking dumpster, right? Because of $5. Now, mind you, I'm I'm a realist too. I fill up my car and it costs me a lot of money and I hate it. But I actually would hate living in an autocracy with Donald Trump yep. is the Fuhrer, right? Where like with Kim Jong-un, you got to walk outside when he's going down the street in the middle of sub-zero temperature simply because it, it appeals to his ego. It's, right. it's, a, it's a real problem and people don't see it. It's, I hate to say it, it's because they're stupid or they're blind. It's one or the other. Yeah, you know, I, I think there is a little bit of... Uh, of blindness and a little bit of ignorance, um, deliberate ignorance. Um, we've seen that narrative play itself out in the evangelical community that have so, um, you know, wholeheartedly and I think in many ways um, uh, falsely embraced this uh, this sort of Trumpist behavior that they would not condone uh, in others and did not condone in others for damn near 40 years. Um, and yet that hypocrisy is there. And so there is this combination um, of ignorance and uh, just sort of a, a, a lack of, of, of honesty that, that forms the hypocrisy around what we're seeing. And, and so it, it's, it is conversations like this to call it out. It is, and I said this to you the first time um, we ever chatted, and it's certainly something I said during uh, the course of your trials and tribulations um, that were very, very public. That regardless of what you think of, you know, Michael Cohen and what he did or did not do, what he may have done or may not have done, what he said or what he didn't say, he is now the perfect person to pull back the blinders open up the doors, you know, strip down the, the curtains and, and lay bare the room so you can see exactly what's going on inside. So regardless of 
how we got here or who the messenger is, accept the moment, walk into the room with clear eyes and understanding exactly what is being shown to you or what's being told to you. Because at this point, I remember saying this on MSNBC, at this point, there's no upside for Michael to lie about any of this because it's all no. verifiable. <laughs> and 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 I provided all of those documentary evidence right, uh, in right. order to justify. But I want to move on and I want to ask you this, because, you know, we're talking about fucking liars here. So let me bring up two of them. The Washington Post today released a series of texts from Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jason Miller that showed the origin of the absurd and ugly lie that it was Antifa supporters who were behind the January 6th attack. Now, the timing shows how quickly the lie was constructed and then just as quickly how it spread via Fox News and right-wing media. In dis- now, in, it's amazing here because in discussing the larger motive of spreading this lie, the Post wrote, and I'm going to quote now, all this points to something else as well. The extraordinary cynicism at the core of much right-wing foremongering about the left. Now, Green right. belongs to a faction of right-wing Republicans who not only traffic in intimidation of political violence and thuggery, they often reverse justify it with wildly hysterical claims about the left's alleged violence and thuggery whose detachment from any sense of obligation to empirical reality is absolute. If you do me the favor, discuss with me what you believe the Post is saying here and how it figures on the right exploiting these baseless rumors of marauding Antifa terrorists as a kind of dog whistle for white America and how that is used as kind of a whataboutism to excuse what happened on January 6th. Yeah, I think the Post uh, very accurately lays that out. And, and, and you know, to break it down into, into street terms... Uh, basically, what what uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene and uh, Miller and others inside and outside the White House um, were doing at that time, as they had been doing uh, or attempting to do, running out of the RNC operations and other organs of the party, the Congressional Committee, Senatorial Committee, etc., is the the broader umbrella of, umbrella of own the libs. So when you're breaking down what that means and how that looks, what it what it what it says to me, at least, is let's let's create the kind of deflection points that we need around our own behavior projected back onto other organs and institutions and individuals in a way that that, you know, sort of shifts the narrative away from us and onto them. So you're looking at the screen, seeing all of these white nationalists storming the, the, the Capitol. What these assholes want you to walk away with in looking at that was that they were actually supporters of Antifa, meaning largely um, black and white individuals who were far left antagonists uh, who were stirring this pot. So don't look at these folks as the white Trump supporters that they were, but rather look at them as white and black people who put on Trump paraphernalia to storm the to storm the castle, if you will. So here's the rub. You can take every Antifa 
in the country. <laughs> and, and, and they wouldn't come close to the number of people who were on that platform that day storming the Hill. Um, meaning that organization, which has already been discredited at, um, as an institutional organization that has been projected as terrorists or or somehow anti-US government, our you know, Trump's own Justice Department took care of that and said, I'm sorry, that they just that ain't there. A, it's not enough people, and B, that's not the kind of behavior they're engaged in. Um, but this is a form of projection. It is a form of trying to own uh, the libs in a way that he says, you know, it's not us, it's them. And he gets into this, if you don't believe that, to your other point about the whataboutism, well, if you don't believe, but what about them? You know, even if you, even if it is us, you're you're not critical of. And I just saw this tweet recently this week uh, on on a related subject. Someone saying, "Well, everybody's not paying attention to all those, you know, all the damage that Antifa caused during the during the George Floyd riots." I'm like, uh, a, uh, they didn't storm the U.S. Capitol. B, yeah, they burned a target or two. That was in their own neighborhood. Um, C still still improper, still improper, still improper. But, but why and, is and, one being used to justify or discredit the other? That's the problem. You know what well, that is, because, Michael? That's that's called that. That's what illusionists do, right? Yes, exactly. You see, you see, you see this. Nothing in my hand, right? Right. Right. Nothing right. there. You know, don't, right. don't look over here to the right. Look over there to the left. That's, that's what it exactly, is. And that's the deflection. That is the deflection uh, and the projection that you want to see here. So, yeah, it doesn't it didn't surprise. It didn't surprise me when I read this story. It doesn't it didn't it didn't surprise me. And it wouldn't have at the time if it was revealed real time back in uh, December and January of what the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and others were doing to set this thing in motion, to, to find the boogeymen and women and to project onto them the bad acts that were about to take place. Uh, and, and, and here we are. All of that's now being revealed because we have the text messages back and forth. You've got, you know, the setup and then the plaintiff, you know, the plaintiff plea by folks like Sean Hannity telling them and, and Laura Ingram telling them to stop after they've been going air and and tell that continue to tell that same story or Don um, Jr. or Ivanka or just about exactly. everybody rancid penis saying all of them. But, you know, Mike, I, I this I said this also on MSNBC at one point. You know how I know that it wasn't Antifa that was storming the Capitol? How's that? Because if it were people of color, if they were black and brown, there would have been a whole lot of dead bodies sitting there on the floor in front of the Capitol. That's really well, what I believe. And that's really sad. As, it is, as no, I mean, I, I know I, I know I believe it in my heart, and I and I wish to God that I that I didn't, and I wish that I didn't think it was true. But you rest assured that if it were um if it were black people or, pe- or brown people or people of color that were storming the Capitol that day. Rest assured that there would have been many more bullets fired than the one oh, that they, they, prevented that girl, off, that woman from going in. Oh, yeah. They, they wouldn't even have made it up the steps. They would have been fired upon the moment they started to encroach upon the barricades that were initially set up. 
they would have been fired upon as they tried to ascend the step. How I mean, sad is that? I, I, I don't have How to, sad you and I that? don't have to make that up. We have history to show that. I mean, we just, we just know the way a police action reacts to people of color engaging, engaging in disruptive, violent behavior, uh, how that turns out, because we've seen how it turns out when they don't engage in disruptive, violent behavior. Yeah. So, you know, the idea that, you know, this somehow would have been the same narrative, that they would have been allowed to encroach the building <laughs> yeah, and, to, right. and to break the glass and to, to sit at the rostrum and to crap on the halls of the Congress just would not have happened. It just wouldn't have happened. So there, there is this, this ongoing um, reality of accountability in all of this that still remains, in my view, an undercurrent that that is a real live current that needs to be addressed in, in so many different ways. And it goes back to how we started the conversation. When, you, when you're sitting back and you're watching these people do what they've done in the way that they've done it with full frontal evidence of their of their violation of law and their oaths of office, et cetera, and not pay a price for that. Um, it really sends the, the message going forward that I can now engage in that behavior with impunity. But here's the rub. Don't try that shit if you're black or brown. Right. <laughs> right. Your ass, your ass going to have a Look, whole Mike, different outcome. Yeah, that is 100% true, but I it's don't understand it. a whole the, different outcome. It, it sure is, but I don't understand this um, this this concept. It's why I turned around at the House Oversight Committee, and the first words out of my mouth, Donald Trump is a racist. And it's true, yeah. and what he's doing is he's playing on white privilege and white fear of of you know people of color of black of black males yep. and so on yep. i have to be honest mike you know if i saw no, you walking down the street i wouldn't fear you at all i know i can kick your ass up and down the street so i'm not really sure why i'm not really right. sure you know i mean you know webster <laughs> I, I got i got him too don't worry about it you, got <laughs> you know i got, you webster, got, me I got webster on the list I got, I got i got kevin hart no problem i take right. his no ass problem. out too. no problem yeah no problem at all but <laughs> let me move forward before we really digress into a full Right, conversation exactly. here. Exactly. So despite everything that we know about the GOP's efforts to end democracy, they're still likely going to win majorities in both the House yeah. and, and the Senate this November. So if you would share some predictions with me on what the next two years will look like with someone like Kevin McCarthy as the House Speaker and Jim Jordan running the judiciary. I mean, that really scares the living yeah, shit out it's, of me. It's, how much, it, it, tell it, me, how much deeper down the authoritarian rabbit hole do you think that we're going to ultimately fall? Well, I, I think that's the ultimate question for people. I mean, I think the 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 stakes are very high here. It will be a hellscape in many respects because uh, this will this will be the setup of the re, the return of the revenge, if you will, um, where they will begin to, in their efforts to placate Trump, put in motion as we've already discussed, you know, impeachment inquiries, uh, Hunter Biden inquiries. Um, you know, all kinds of investigation of a former uh, of, of current White House officials and 
um, you know, positions that the White House has taken, like you mentioned, uh, in Afghanistan and efforts there. So all of that's going to be front and center. It will not be it will there will be no governing going on. So if people think that there will be policy prescriptions put forward. Uh, forget that. Uh, if there should be an opening on the Supreme Court, that doesn't happen. Um, because Mitch McConnell's already told us that, well, he got one, he's not getting any more. Um, and, and so I think people need to recognize if you give power back to the party that, that created and, and fueled the insurrection um, and attempted to overthrow the government, what the hell do you think you're going to get? They're not going to come to you with, with you know, pancakes and lollipops and say, here, this is, you know, this is what we want to serve the American people. What they're going to serve up is recrimination and anger and vengefulness. Remember, these are people that are hell-bent on one thing and one thing only, owning the libs. And however that's defined, supplementing that, animating that is a desire to embrace authoritarianism in a way that we have never seen in this country. Um, it is it is really old line European republicanism uh, from the 1920s and the 1930s that led to the rise of some pretty god awful assholes in in world history. Um, we are now watching the 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 beginning uh, origins of some of our own homemade asshole authoritarians out of states like Florida uh, and Arizona. I mean, just if you go and just watch, I just commend to your audience to go online and watch the clip of the U.S. United States Senate candidates uh, of the, from the Republican Party running in the state of Pennsylvania and the debate that they just had last night. It. My God. I mean, if you want to get us, you want to get a taste of what's ahead of you. Look at what they're doing now. That behavior people does not change. I cannot emphasize this enough. I don't know what the hell we have to say to you to get you to understand that these mofos are not changing their stripes for you. They've embraced Trumpism. They will kill each other to get the blessing of this giant asshole of a president. And the reality of it is it means nothing to him other than what it makes him feel like in the moment. He owes them no allegiance. He owes them nothing. And yet here they are willing to turn over the country, their, 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 their money, legitimacy, their money, <laughs> whatever, to this man. So I, I, you know, I just think that when you're going to the polls and you're looking at, I get it. Yeah. Inflation's 8%, but really that just happened in a year. No, I don't know. We're also, we're also under 4% of unemployment, the lowest in, in right. decades, but you know, I'll tell you what well, bothers minute, me. Let me just, but let me just clarify this sure. point. So people understand what we're talking about here. That 8% inflation didn't begin because, because Joe Biden spent $1.1 trillion on infrastructure. That 8% inflation didn't appear just because Joe, the Biden administration tried to check COVID with a, uh, a response that, that 
accelerated the needle program and um, the vaccine program and the um, you know uh, getting getting uh, getting control of that that eight percent inflation started when Republicans spent eight trillion dollars over in the previous four years you how the hell you think you account for for that spending when there was no way to pay for it of course that's going to have an impact on the economy so it's not People need to be clarified. You, I can get it. You want to be in the moment and blame the guy who's standing in front of you. But as you as you rightly noted, Michael, yeah, inflation is 8%, but unemployment is 3.6. Inflation is 8%, but guess what? The economy is opened up again, you know, and, and we are producing goods. I mean, we have we have such a surplus of job opportunities now. We're trying to find employees. Everybody wants to talk about uh, what's happening at the border. You know why the border is a quote problem right now? Because Americans aren't taking the jobs that are out there on the street, and so those workers are just migrating through. And and guess what? A lot of employers aren't shaking their head at that. They're like, okay, as long as you got the right papers, come. Mm-hmm. So we need to understand and contextualize what's going on. And it goes back to the point you were making before about we can't afford to be ignorant about what is really happening now. We also, put, Mike, can't be- put on we, political blinders. Right. And what we can't be ignorant of are the people that are running, as you rightfully stated in yesterday's shit show in Pennsylvania. And one right. of the things that scares the living piss out of me is Jim Jordan potentially being the, you know, the judiciary, um, the, the um, chairman of the Judiciary Committee. This is a man in 2020, there's an article in Sports Illustrated, and everybody on this program knows how much I despise Jim Jordan. But I want to read read a, couple, a quote and so and then I want to move on but I want to read this quote Ohio representative and former Ohio State University wrestling coach Jim Jordan aided and abetted in the university's cover-up of sexual abuse within the program and that's coming from a former team captain who said that in front of the Ohio State legislators all right Jim Jordan called me crying groveling, begging me to go against my brother, begging me, crying for a half hour, DeSabato said. That's the kind of cover-up that's going on here. And this guy, Adam DeSabato, captain of the team during the early 1990s, told members of the Ohio House Civil Justice Committee that Jordan and other officials ignored former Ohio State doctor Richard Strauss's sexual abuse of wrestlers from 1979 to 1997. And DiSabato said that Jordan and other team officials knew about the open shower facilities that facilitated sexual harassment and abuse of team wrestlers. All right. This is this is bullshit. And yet this is a guy that's going to be the chair of the of the Senate Judiciary Committee. Folks, if that doesn't scare the living shit out of you, it's like I mean, it's like I mean, it's like putting Jeffrey Dahmer in charge of the president's dinner. I mean, this is absolutely insane. I don't know what people are thinking anymore. And they think this fucking guy is funny because he shows up to the floor not wearing a jacket. He's only in a tie. He looks like he's ready to go pick corn. This isn't fucking funny. 
All right? And yeah. I know, you know, we can make lots of jokes about it. And I'm sure Saturday Night Live does a better job at it than we do. But this isn't funny when the guy is going to be the head. He's going to be the chair of the Senate Judiciary. I mean, one of the most powerful committees that's out there. And he's a Trump loyalist. I mean, this is just truly amazing. But let me just move on for a quick second here sure. and ask you the following. So the release of the Kevin McCarthy tape with the minority leader discussing how he would pressure <laughs> Trump to resign the presidency shows for at least a very brief moment the truth behind his blind allegiance that January 6th, right, for people like McCarthy and especially Mitch McConnell was an opportunity to move the party away from Donald Trump. Now that moment though lasted a mere five days before the retrenchment began. Now as someone with a window into what these guys are thinking, what do you think happened behind the scenes that forced all of these guys to fall back in line? I mean, was it the reality of where the base voters' loyalties lay? Or yeah. was it something more sinister? Like, do you think that Trump has dirt on these guys? And how does he keep them in line and continually carrying his dirty water? He came, it, it, Trump, it, Trump doesn't have dirt on anybody. Um, I agree. Uh, He's, you know, he's never, and you would know better than I would. He's never struck, uh, striked me as the kind of guy who who would roll like that. Um, he would find he would find other ways that that cut a little bit closer to the bone than having a picture of you with, uh, you know, some naked prostitute or whatever. Um, I think what what he's got on them is. He, of is the fanboy allegiance that his that the base gives him that that these people will will run through will pour gasoline on themselves run through a wall of fire um, and expect not to be burned because of their allegiance to Donald Trump and so when the when these elected officials see that they're like I don't need that coming after me I don't need that uh, in my primary. I don't need that in my general election. I don't need that hitting my fundraising. So it's all about self-preservation. And, and once he knows that, it's like any, any authoritarian, once they've assessed the weaknesses of the people around them, uh, hello, exploitation at home here. Come on, let's just do it every day. That's one. Here's the thing that I think people need to be clear on with Kevin McCarthy and why this is problematic internally as opposed to externally. Kevin McCarthy told the exact, told the truth when he came out and refuted the New York Times article, when he said, I did not tell the president to resign. That's an absolute truth because he doesn't have the balls to do that. He doesn't have the balls to confront the president that way. So he did not tell the president that the lie was what he said to the caucus, that I'm going to tell the president to resign. And that back and forth with when Liz Cheney spoke up and said, well, let's be clear about what we're doing, but, you know, is it going to be this? Are we about these are the things we're concerned about? Yada, yada. I, you know, I'm concerned about the same thing. I, you know, he needs to account. I'm going to go to the president. In fact, I said this to him in our earlier conversation. And when I talk to him again, I'm going to make sure to say to him, you know, that I think he should resign. That was the lie. And that's not lost from what I hear on a lot of caucus members who feel 
somehow that they've been uh, put in a in an awkward position now with a lot of reporters coming up to them saying, well, do you believe Kevin then or do you believe him now? What's the deal? Did you got, you know, and and Kevin has a tendency, which is why he was not made speaker the last time of putting his foot in his mouth in a way that is inextractable and he just can't do it. And this did not go down well with a lot of members of the caucus, um, not just those who aren't Kevin McCarthy fans who would never vote for him for, for speaker in the first place, but a, it gave a lot of fodder to the Freedom Caucus that want to take him out, that would prefer, to your point, instead of seeing Jim Jones, Jim Jones. <laughs> He's the Jim uh, Jones of the Ohio <laughs> wrestling team. Right. Instead <laughs> <laughs> instead of seeing, uh, what's it, Jim? Um, Jim Jordan. Uh, Jim Jordan, not Jim Jordan. Instead of seeing Jim Jordan as chairman of the House uh, Judicial Committee, uh, Judiciary Committee, um, seeing him as Speaker of the House or seeing him as Majority Leader. Uh, and there, there's a lot of momentum out there for that. So Kevin McCarthy is, is doing everything he has to do in his view to stay as close to Trump as he can because he wants Trump final imprimatur on his political ambitions to become the Speaker. I'm still skeptical that Trump delivers that because Trump Trump sees him for what he is. Now, Trump's calculation could be you would know better. Um, this is a punk I can use, particularly as I do my run up for the 2024 presidential campaign. I don't think he runs, but he wants to be a player and, and be a kingmaker and shape that um, mm-hmm. in some fashion. So owning the Speaker of the House the way he would own Kevin McCarthy would make a lot of sense to him, a lot of business sense to him, if you will. Um, so he very well may in the end, despite Kevin's inability to do anything that's politically smart or correct, um, give him that nod because he's such a patsy and he's so malleable and he's so obsequious with the president that um not only does he massage all the proper body parts for Donald Trump, he massages the most important body part, and that's his ego. Yeah. Uh, that, you know, yeah, he'll, he'll, he'll though, be the guy. Yeah, though I have to be honest with you, Mike. I believe that if, in fact, that these individuals win their races, and I made a mistake. I was referring to Jim Jordan as the, uh, the Senate judiciary. I'm talking about the House judiciary. Right. That's what right? I said, House. But, right. right, the House judiciary. Uh, but w- the interesting thing is I don't think any of them stay loyal to him once they get, once they get into where they want right now. That's just my opinion. You know, they don't, I don't think stay that loyal he, to who? To Donald. I think that they all realize oh, at I, that point in time that he's no longer relevant and he's losing his relevancy on a daily basis. Just unfortunately, I, really, you think not, so? you really yeah, think so? I do, I do. I really believe that all of them. I mean, end up I doing, do. We just watched, but we just watched the Senate. And that's because because that's because they haven't gotten the win yet. Once they get in, do you really think that Mehmet Oz gives two shits about Donald? Mehmet cares about Donald as much as Donald cares about Mehmet. He's using Donald like the rest of them in order to get in. Do you really think Ron DeSantis is going to placate Donald Trump once he once he wins? The, the answer is he's going to run for the presidency, whether or not Donald, you know, chooses to join the race or not. It doesn't make a difference. But I want to jump onto a different topic that involves Donald. All right. 
I want to talk for a moment about Elon Musk and his now purchasing of Twitter. Because yeah. he's made significant noise about removing censorship from the platform, which means to me that he's inclined to let people like Donald Trump return oh, yeah. to the platform along with other extremist voices. Now, it's interesting because Donald has already said that he's not going back onto Twitter, which is bullshit, that yeah, he's going to only work on his Elon Musk social. called him up and yeah. You'll, he doesn't even back. have to. He doesn't even have to call him. Donald's going to go yeah. right back on once Elon takes over. Now, how critical is Twitter to public discussion, and how has it shaped our current discourse? And finally, what are your fears for a Musk-run Twitter? Well, first off, uh, there are a lot of ways to come at this. I, I, I want to start, and I think it's important to, to sort of put a little bit of fact here in perspective for everybody, so we know exactly what we're talking about and why we're talking about it the way I'm about to talk about it. We need to understand Twitter, like Facebook, like LinkedIn, like Instagram, like TikTok, are all publicly or privately held companies, meaning they may be publicly traded on the stock exchange or they're privately held, such as Twitter will become when Elon Musk takes it over, right? The First Amendment does not apply here. The First Amendment only applies to government action. If the federal government or the state government owned Twitter, then the questions about free speech would be applicable across the board. So this notion that somehow Elon Musk is going to open up this free speech market space is utter bullshit because it already exists. As a privately held or publicly held entity, I can control what Michael Cohen says on my platform. If I might, don't want Michael Cohen to speak on my platform, guess what? Michael Cohen is not speaking on my platform. If Michael Cohen says something I don't like on my platform, I have a choice to either say, okay, Michael, don't say that again, or you can say it, but within these parameters, I get to set those guardrails. So the reality of it is here that somehow people thinking that we're going to, you know, have this this uh, very different kind of approach relative to the First Amendment rights of free speech, we're not because it doesn't apply to the extent that Elon Musk wants anybody to come on his platform. He can say it. He can invite all those rejects back on, including Donald Trump, who, like I agree with you, will jump at it in a heartbeat um, to get back on that platform with millions and millions and millions of followers. So what does that mean? Twitter is a shit show in and of itself now. It will become the wild, wild west of shit shows in the future. The concern, and I think it will be one that a lot of Americans will be expressing within six months after the final, um, the ink is dried on that exchange, that this is now a forum for the projection and the advocacy of all types of illiberal, anti-democratic behavior and philosophies um, that are going to be corrupting to current and future generations. And we'll have to decide whether or not this platform survives on that basis. Um, but he can do whatever he wants with it. The First Amendment doesn't apply. You can go on Twitter now. Well, not now because the current ownership has some guardrails. 
But if he goes on and says, this is the wild, wild west, y'all come and do what you want to do, he can do that. And so you can say things. Now, you know, you may be holding yourself out for defamation charges if you say something that's defamatory or and the like. But hey, um, we'll have to wait and see. I I, I think it's a scary proposition. Yeah. Well, me, me personally, I don't find it scary. And I have no issues with Elon Musk buying whatever the hell he wants to buy. And I know from my own experience, as far as I'm concerned, let Donald Trump come back on Twitter. Yeah. Let him let him continue to make an asshole out of himself. And ultimately, one by one, what have we seen? We've seen people tired. It's Trump fatigue of the bullshit day in and day out. You know, I remember when Trump first joined onto Twitter and he started really, you know, getting millions and millions and millions of followers. And every time he'd put out or I would put out a tweet on his behalf, every single time that he would do that, you would see two million, three million, you know, likes onto it and so on. While he was president of the United States, 16,000, 18,000. And just look at the numbers. The numbers don't lie. Donald does, but the numbers don't lie. His popularity, people start okay, great. It's just more fodder for the press, the you know, the press that wants to be legitimate to turn and say, it's just another Trump lie. I'm all for Elon Musk doing whatever he wants. And if in fact I find the platform to be so troubling to me, I have my options too. I just, right. I just, I just jump off of the stupid platform and I move to someplace else. Maybe I'll move to Donald's Truth Network. You know who the who the hell knows if if oh, if Devin that, if Devin the douchebag if Devin the douche uh, Nunez over there can finally figure out. Could you imagine a three billion dollar valuation on something that doesn't have a single a single follower onto it? But look, Mike, as we're final, you know, we're getting to the end of the hour. I mean, time sure. goes by when you really fast when you're having fun. I have one last question for you, and it goes back to Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who I do uh-huh. believe is going to run regardless of whether Donald, you know, is, you know, making an announcement or not, you're going to see so many people on that line like existed the first time for him. You're going to see even more because everyone, everyone truly believes that if Donald could win, that they can win. So here's my question to you. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has created, and the quote is, an election police to root out supposed fraud and other crimes, right? It's like, it's like the wolf, you know, monitoring the chicken house here. Now, right. this feels seriously shady to me. It feels authoritarian and problematic on a number of levels. I'm curious what your feelings are about Ron DeSantis and what he's doing with this election police unit. He's a better dressed up version than Donald Trump. He's a more articulate, uh, charismatic version of Donald Trump, uh, which makes him uh, 10 times more dangerous. Um, and that's been evidenced by the book burnings in Florida, the, the CRT crap, the, the anti-gay uh, crap, all of it um, uh, that, that he's been able to pass. The, the latest being, of course, um, the the efforts uh, by the legislature regarding Disney punishing corporations because they don't like the speech of those corporations. So corporations are persons for uh, purposes of donations and 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 money uh, to their campaigns, but they're not persons with respect to any other rights under the the state or or federal constitutions. Um, so I think we need I think we need to mark this time down. Um, 
I am not yet convinced that that DeSantis runs in this cycle um, uh, for for uh, for a number of reasons. Some are related to Trump. Um, some are related to other opportunities, but um, that that may be there. But that clearly can change as we as we get to the fall and see how that plays out, Michael. Um, I think the the country should take note. What you see happening in Florida is what Ron DeSantis wants to bring to the to the federal level. He wants what he wants to bring to the country, and you have to ask yourselves: Are you okay with that? Um, because uh, you already have states emanating uh, imitating his behavior and his policies, um, and I think that that is something that should be a, a big red flag for all of us. Look, DeSantis didn't start out this way. And and the fact of the matter is, like J.D. Vance and some others that we know, that this is the performative bullshit that they'd like to engage in, um, makes them more dangerous, more despicable, less trustworthy than someone who is, you know, just the general, you know, kind of P.T. Barnum rube that Donald Trump is. Yeah. You know. Something I've said on this podcast many, many times, I've said it on CNN, on MSNBC, ABC, every, every outlet that I, you know, that I was asked questions on. There's a statement that Donald used to repeat over and over again, and it's a Putin um, slash Stalin type quote. And um, he really attributed it mostly to Putin. And the quote was, it doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the vote. And that's, of course, why Putin gets 88%, 90% of the vote, which is always a fucking landslide, you know, not, not seen by anything other than, of course, Kim Jong-un. And Donald right. thought that was a fascinating scenario. It's true. It doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the vote. And that's what I see Ron DeSantis setting up here, willingly or unwittingly, right? This is what he is doing. Yeah. And it's, it's Scares set up in me. Arizona. Yep. No, you are absolutely right. Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania. Um, uh, exactly right. Florida. Um, this is the setup. And some of us like yourself and myself have been screaming it for since the last election that all the changes that are flowing through these legislatures uh, are designed for that very end point. And that's what we really need to be nervous about. We need to ensure. And that's why I constantly say mea culpa is not just a podcast. It's a movement. And that's why I ask people to just stay connected because we're constantly putting out new um, new information and uh, things that we need help on. So, you know, if we don't if we don't ensure that we get the votes out there in November for this midterm and especially for the for the general, we're going to be as as a country. We're watching our democracy, um, you know, in a free fall in what's known on yeah. Wall Street as a death spiral. But, Mike, let me thank you so much for your time. It's great yeah, seeing man. you, my friend. You know, Absolutely. always great seeing you and sharing another hour. So you stay safe. Um, I will. And um, stay in touch because I need you back on the program. Nah, I'll be lo I look forward to coming back and, and congrats in the effort. Uh, I like, and congrats I like on it. your new podcast, by the way. Yeah, thanks, man. The uh, we Michael Steele podcast, yeah. We have a lot of fun, my friends. Check it out. And it, it, it's great uh, It's great when we get a conversation going, Michael. Really appreciate you, man. You got it, pal. And I appreciate you, so thank you. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking to Michael Steele, I am now convinced more than ever that the Democrats will get crushed in November unless they get their fucking act together and start fighting back. 
I speak frequently on this show about the repercussions of a GOP majority. It's a terrifying prospect, folks. In the Washington Post yesterday, Paul Waldman wrote, the House GOP is a dumpster fire. What if it takes power? Hearings more akin to Soviet show trials, phony investigations, insane conspiracy theories, more shutdowns and crises and havoc, that's what awaits. The country will suffer, democracy will suffer, and it's probably too late. Unless the Democrats start swinging and articulate what will happen if the American people hand the gavel back to these lunatics, with only a few months before the midterm elections, Democrats have not held public televised hearings over the January 6th coup attempt, supported by numerous Republican lawmakers and officials. Unlike the GOP, which successfully smeared the squad and by extension Democrats as woke extremists, they have not called out actual GOP extremists, such as Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar, as representing the base of the GOP. And while Democrats have ignored the GOP's pedophile smears, the QAnon conspiracy theory has become part and parcel of the GOP's mainstream talking points, featured heavily during Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown Jackson's recent confirmation hearings. An ABC News poll from January revealed that 72% of Americans, that's a huge fucking majority, believe that the violent insurrectionists of January 6th were threatening democracy. This should be catnip for Democrats, as each new day brings forth damning text messages that reveal most of the GOP ecosystem was complicit in the failed coup. Finally, don't let the GOP control the culture war. The fact remains that 80% of Americans are against the extremist policies of folks like Ron DeSantis and his war on wokeness. These folks are playing for keeps. They want to overturn Roe versus Wade. They want to turn back marriage equality for LGBTQ Americans and continue to flood our streets with guns. These people are fucking dangerous, and what they want is a threat to each and every person who listens to this show. So do me a favor, when you're done listening, call your congressman. Call his or her office and ask them what they are doing to win the midterm elections. What are they doing to fight back against the authoritarian tide? Flood them with emails, blast them on Twitter, use your social media, but make them act now. And more importantly, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea Culpa. Nothing but the truth.